Welcome to Parker Memorial's podcast of the 8.30 a.m. service. Our service includes modern-style worship and an on-time message from God's Word. This week, we continue our in-depth study into the book of Revelation by Dr. Mac Amos. Now, here's this week's message. You have your Bible. Turn to Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, and we'll begin reading in verse number 7. We're at the sixth church of the Revelation, the church of Philadelphia. If there were one church out of the seven churches that I would be, want to be a member of, this would be the church. Uh, it has no word, and we'll talk about it later, no word of correction, but they were busy about the kingdom business. It's probably the most familiar of the churches because of the fact of the name that's familiar to us. Most of the other churches, we didn't know their names, but Philadelphia, we've heard that before, haven't we? It means the city of brotherly love. That word phileo, or whatever, it means love. It's the brotherly kind of love. And so Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Let's read, uh, beginning in verse 7 of the Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth, upon the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have in order that no one take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And also I'll write my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I will share a second message next week from this passage because it's such an important part of the Christian era, the Christian age. It is the time of the missionary age. There's no time in Christian history when there was greater evangelism or mission work done than in this particular time of history. And I want to be able to introduce to you some wonderful people, wonderful names like William Carey and Hudson Taylor, Dwight L. Moody, and Charles Haddon Spurgeon, all of those living in this time frame. But today I want to talk about the biblical basis and how God speaks to our individual heart from the message here to the church at Philadelphia. The first thing we've seen in each one of the letters is that Jesus always, who is writing or penning or giving this letter to John, he is always identifying himself some way. As he begins that letter, he's going to identify himself something that's pertinent to that particular church. So look how he identifies himself here in verse 7. He who is holy, who is true, and who has the key of David. Let's talk about those three descriptions. It says 
about Jesus. First of all, he says, he is holy. The word holy is designated for God. It means to be set apart, to be uniquely different, to be above and beyond creation and everything that's created. To even be above human beings because we are created by God. God is holy because he's set apart from that and he's greater than that. But Jesus now, as he introduces himself, he says that he is holy. He makes himself out to be God. He identifies himself as being God, being set apart, being unique. He's not one of God's creation. He is God. And he's holy and set apart and to be worshipped by others as that one true God. He also says not only is he holy, but he is true. Now two words in the Greek language for true. One of those words means it's just a fact that is reliable. But the other word for true that is used here, it means that it is the original. As compared to what is real, this is the original. This is genuine. This is not artificial or made up. This is something you can count on as being the real thing. And Jesus says that he is true. He is the original, genuine God. You can count on him. He's not like other gods. He's not like those who are not real, just made up in figment of somebody's imagination or Satan's prompting. He is rather the true, original, living God. It's much like the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 1, I think it's about verse 3. He says, he, Jesus, is the exact representation of God. Jesus is not a mini-God, he is God. He's 100% God and he's 100% man. Not half God, not half man, he is all God, all man. Now if you can figure that out, you're smarter than I am and a whole lot of people, but the fact is true, he is 100% of both. And he identifies himself right here saying, I am a holy God and I am the true and original God and I have come to you. Then he says the third thing. He says this, and I have the key of David. The key of David. He goes on and describes about the key of David. Because I have that key who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens. In other words, this key of David is a, is a key of great authority. It's the opening up and the closing up and And he's the one who has the ultimate authority that no one can can stop that from happening. Whatever he wants to open, no one can stop it from happening. Whatever he wants to close, no one can stop it from happening. He has that key. Now, if you want to know the origin of the key of of David, you find it in Isaiah 22. When you get home, just write down those notes. Isaiah 22, verses 15 through 25. There's a story that is told there about the key of David. What happens is there was a man named Shebna. And Shebna was the one who was responsible for the household of the king. He was responsible for the treasure of the king. He had been given the authority to be the steward over the king's household. But he was an unfaithful steward. He wasn't really interested in the king's household. He was more interested in his own coffer. He was more interested in getting rich and wealthy and taking care of himself than he was about the king's household. So what happens is they remove Shebna, the unfaithful steward, And they bring in a man named Eliakim. And Eliakim is a faithful man, a good man. He's one who will take on the king's responsibility, the king's possessions in the king's house as though it is his. And therefore, because he was faithful, 
the king gives to him the keys of David, where it says, whatever he opens, it is open. Whatever he closes, it is closed. In other words, if you were going to get into the king's household, if you were going to deal with the king, if you were going to have opportunity to go in or go out, you had to go through Eliakim. You didn't just walk in there. He was the one who gave the authority to access or deny the access to the household. Eliakim in the Old Testament is really a type of Jesus. He was a faithful steward who took care of the king's business. He had the power and authority to open and close. And now when Jesus comes here and introduces himself to the Philadelphia church, when he says this to them, he says, I have those keys of David. I am the real Eliakim. I'm the real steward. And because I am that real steward, I have the authority that whatever I open stays open, whatever I close, it stays closed. And what does he mean? Well, he, he basically is talking about anything in life and especially about the kingdom of God. He's the one who opens up the kingdom of God. Isn't it great to know that the kingdom of God and the gospel is available to every person? It is. It's available to every person. It does not matter whether you are rich are poor. The gospel is open. Do you know why? Because Christ opened it. At the cross, he opened up the good news that, that he saves, that he died on the cross. And when he opened up the good news, he opened it up for every man. No matter what their economic status might be, no matter what their race might be, no matter what their position might be, it does not matter. The gospel is open to them. And you have the opportunity, like any other man, to receive the gospel of Christ. Isn't that wonderful to know? Isn't it great to know that we qualify to hear the gospel? Even the apostle Paul says that prison bars cannot keep the gospel from being spread. In the book of Galatians, he says, I am in prison, but the gospel is not in chains. The gospel is not in prison. Even while I am in prison, I am leading people to Christ, and they are going out and sharing the gospel. There is no way to keep the gospel from being spread. Because, my friend, listen, it's been opened by Jesus. Even in countries where it might cost somebody their life to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they still accept the gospel. They still respond to the kindness of the Lord because it's been opened up and Jesus says, what I open up, it cannot be closed. Isn't that great to know? But there's a second part to that key of, the, of David. What was it? He says, what I open up cannot be closed. But he says, what? But what I close cannot be opened. See, Jesus has the authority to open and to close. And in regard to that, whatever God does in, in that regard, nobody can change it. And what it tells us about the gospel, my friend, is that the gospel is open today. You can respond to the gospel, but there's going to come a time when that day of opportunity is closed. That opportunity to respond to the gospel will be no more. You say, you think that really happens? Oh, yes, I know it happens. Matter of fact, in the, in the Old Testament, you have an example of that. In the Old Testament, you have an example of a man named Noah. You remember that story, don't you? Noah built the ark, and God commanded, it's Genesis, in Genesis 7. He commanded him to get two of each of the animals and put them on the ark. He gave all that responsibility, told him and his family to get on the ark. 
But go and read that chapter again. For it says when they get on the ark and all have gotten on the ark, that God closes the door. It wasn't Noah who closed the door. It was God who closed the door. And because God closed the door, that meant that Noah couldn't open the door. Not to let others in. Don't you imagine when the waters began to rise, all those who had made fun of, of Noah building that ark, don't you imagine they decided they'd like to get in? Don't you imagine there was somebody knocking on the outside of that ark saying, hey, let me in, let me in. It wasn't Noah who didn't let them in. God had closed the door. And when God closes the door, it cannot be opened. Now is the day of opportunity. Now is the open door. Now salvation is available to every person. But there will be a day when the door closes. So what did Paul say to the Christians at Corinth? He says, today is the day. What? Today is the day of salvation. Do not wait tomorrow. Do not wait even to the end of this day. Today is the day of salvation. Respond because the door is open. But you do not know when and how long the door will be open. And when that time comes that the door is closed, the opportunity will be over. Jesus says, I have the key of David. I open, I close. I am the one with that authority. But not only does he, he talk about that, he, he goes on beyond that, describing himself. And, and ordinarily, I, I told you there's usually a, a word of, of correction. But there is no word of correction for this church. There are two churches that didn't have a word of correction. One was Smyrna. And the other is Philadelphia. Smyrna didn't have a word of correction because we talked about they were a pure church. And you know how they had such purity? Because they went through such persecution. When you go through awesome persecution, it's going to bring purity in the fellowship. Because no one's going to be in the fellowship who's half-hearted. They're going to be in the fellowship knowing it's going to cost them their life. And that church was pure and therefore had no correction. This church has no correction because you know Why? Because they're busy doing what the kingdom work is. They're busy out there evangelizing. They're busy out there doing mission work. They're they're busy expanding the kingdom. So two things can keep us living a life where we don't have to have correction about it. One is that we have a pure life. The other is that we're busy doing what God tells us to do in expanding the kingdom of God. There is no word of correction. But rather, he gives a word of commendation. And he gives that word of commendation and followed by, by some promises that he makes that will bless your heart if you're a child of God today. First of all, let's look in verse 8 about his, his word of encouragement and commendation. He says this in verse 8, I know your deeds. You need to circle those words. That's a familiar, that's a familiar statement through these churches. <laughs> you know what he says? I know what you're doing. I know where you live. I know what you're thinking. I know your attitude. He knows everything about us. He knows that in the church and he knows it individually. Now, that's kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? That this this world we live in now that's got billions and billions of people, that God can know my every thought, my every intent, my every action, but he's big enough. And he says, I know your every deed. I know your every deed. And what did he say about this church? He says, I know your deeds. Behold... I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. 
He says, I'm opening up for this church an opportunity to share the gospel. That idea of the open door is that the gospel will be shared and and more opportunities be given. and, And you'll have expanded privileges to share and expand the gospel. And as we'll show you next week in history, no time was the gospel ever expanded and increased like it was in this period of time. He said, I'm placing before you this open door and no one can shut it. Well, here's the question. Why why did they get that opportunity? What was there about them that caused them to have this open door? Well, it tells you here in that verse, verse number 8, it tells you three reasons. Why? Three reasons that they have this open door. Here's the first one. Because you have a little power. (laughs) Hear that one? Because you have a little power, here's the second one, and have kept my word, and here's the third, and have not denied my name. Those are the three qualifications of how you have an open door to ministry. How the gospel is spread and expanded in our work. Well, the first of those identifies probably what I call the most unneeded characteristic for spiritual success. Did you hear what I said? The most unneeded characteristic for spiritual success. What do I mean by that? Well, most people believe that what you have to have in order to have spiritual success is you have to have great power. Great power, great authority, uh, great gifts, great ability. Man, if, if if you have these things and all that's great, it's great power. You can be good in the kingdom of God. You can expand the kingdom of God. That's not what he says. Look back at it, verse 8. He says, the reason that it's been opened up to you is because you have a little power. You have just a little power. You don't have great power. You have a little power. And when you have that little bit of power, you're going to depend on me, God says, to give you the power that you need. See, the real work of the kingdom is done by us or done by God. It's done by God, right? He just uses us as an instrument. And the way he uses us best is whenever we are weak and have little power, and we have to depend upon him to be the source of power. What did the Apostle Paul say? The Apostle Paul said this. He said, listen. He said, in my weakness, who's strong? God is strong. In my weakness, God has to show up. God has to be strong. Do you know that sometimes our greatest strengths are our greatest weaknesses? In other words, if if I think I have the ability to do something, I think I'm gifted some way, I think I have a skill some way, sometimes I can get up and I'll try to do that on my own. I I can basically say, Lord, Lord, you can just sit over there, Lord, and I can do it on my own because I have the gifts and abilities. Well, nothing spiritual is going to get done if I'm doing it. Nothing eternal is going to happen if I'm the one doing it. But if I have my own strength and I think I can do it, it really becomes my weakness. But when I don't have the power, when I don't have the strength, and when I'm scared to death, and I have to go to the Lord and say, Lord, if this is going to get done, it's going to be done by you. If eternal things are going to take place, it's going to be done by you. And Lord, I'm asking you to show up, and I'm asking you to reveal your power. Then God does great things. See, A little bit of power allows God to show up and allows God to do his work. And and he said, you don't have the power, you don't have the strength, but that little bit of power is going to give me the opportunity to show and to work in your life. He said a second thing. And he also, he said, you have a little bit of power 
and have kept my word. Kept my word. That means to be obedient to God's word. You've just sought to live by my word. You, as you've discovered the word, you've tr- sought to live by that. And he said, third thing, and you've not denied my name. That means to be faithful in your testimony. To be faithful in your testimony about whose you are and who you are. So if we don't have very much power, but we're willing to be obedient to God and seek to follow his word as best we can, and then we're going to be faithful to him and faithful in our testimony to him and and claiming who he is and giving and sharing that testimony, if we will do those two things along with the fact of not depending on my own strength, God says that opens the door of opportunity. It opens the door of ministry. It's an open door that he brings and gives to that individual or to that church. Those three qualifications. But then he, he follows up by giving three promises. Three promises to the churches, not just to Philadelphia, but to all the churches. Three promises. These three promises ought to make you feel good as a child of God. They ought to make you feel good as a child of God. That's what it says, verse 9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. Well, just like in the church at Smyrna, they identified there was a synagogue. He says the synagogue of Satan who called themselves Jews, but they're not just like it was in Smyrna. He said these people obviously have been opposing this church in Philadelphia. And when he says the synagogue of Satan, he basically identifies what the apostle Paul said that our battle is not against flesh and blood, is it? Battle is not against flesh and blood, but our battle is against what? Powers and principalities of darkness, old Satan. So anytime something rises up against the gospel, something rises up against the church, the ultimate author of that is Satan. And he says it's the synagogue of Satan who call themselves Jews that they're not. Now, it could be the fact that they were Jews, not racial Jews, but they were converted Jews and they did it for the wrong reasons, maybe to be more successful in their business than they were by faith. It could be that fact that they weren't genuine in their faith. But it could also be the fact that what Jesus is saying is this, that every Jew ought to love Jesus. Shouldn't they? Every Jew should love Jesus because Jesus is the Messiah, their Messiah. And if they understood things the way God understands things, and if they grasped what God had revealed in his word, and they accepted who Jesus is, they should be abundantly blessing and abundantly blessing Jesus and his church. But they weren't. They were opposing his church. They were standing against his church. The apostle Paul was brokenhearted over the fact that they were standing against his church, but they were when in reality they should have been blessing and embracing Jesus. But he says, there's this group of people who are there, the synagogue of Satan who call themselves Jews and obviously have been causing you a lot of pain, a lot of agony, a lot of trouble. He said, well, this is my promise to you. Look what he says now. I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. Now, that ought to excite somebody. That all those enemies, all those who are persecuting them, all those who are causing trouble, that one day they're going to come and they're going to bow down before those people. But not only those people, to bow down before 
all believers, but I bow down before the church of the living God. But don't get that, before you get too excited about that, you got to remember exactly what that's talking about. It says they're going to bow down before your feet. But here's the question. Why are they bowing down? Is, is God just humbling them before us and they're going to bow down before us? No, not really. We'll start, discover it later, but it's found in Revelation 20. In Revelation 20, when it talks about the second coming of Jesus, it tells us that he's going to come riding on a white horse, right? And when he comes riding on a white horse, it's going to, it says this. It says in verse 13, And he is clothed with a robe dipped in his blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Who is that army? Us. I'm in it. You in it? We're coming together with him. Now, just here's the picture. Here comes Jesus, Lord of lords and King of kings. He comes up on his white horse. And all of us who are the army of God, dressed in white linen, been washed in the blood of the Lamb, we are behind him, his army coming with him. And whenever he shows up, what did Paul say was going to happen in Philippians chapter 2? He said, at the name of Jesus... Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he's king of kings and lord of lords, right? Is that right? Amen, Brother Mac. Hallelujah. Preach on. I'm going to say amen myself. You ain't like you're asleep this morning. You ought to be excited about that, my friend. They're going to bow down before Jesus. And who's with him? We are. We are. And so these people who bow down before the son of the living God whose precious name is Jesus, will be bowing before our feet. Not because of who we are, are, but who we're with. A big difference. They're not bowing before me because of who I am. They're bowing before me because I'm with him. And they're bowing to him, but they're bowing before me. Amen? Amen? And here's the great thing about it. Don't miss what he said there now. Don't miss what he says in that passage in, in verse number 9. He says this. They come and they'll bow down at your feet. And to know that I have loved you. See, at that time, the whole world's going to know who you identify with. The whole world's going to know that you are redeemed. The whole world's going to know that you've been loved and purchased by him. The whole world's going to know whose you are. And when they're bowing before the Son of Almighty God, they're going to recognize that you, as part of the church of the living God, that you have been loved, redeemed, saved, transformed by Him. By Him. Here's a second promise there in verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. You know what this is talking about, right? We're about to start reading, discovering that when we get over in the Word. Oh, we know that there's there's the the coming of, of the rapture of the church, Jesus coming. And then we know there's the millennial reign, but and the second coming millennial reign, but we also know that it teaches us there are seven years called the what? 
the great tribulation. The great tribulation. Why is it called the great tribulation? Because there's never been tribulation on the earth like that. There's always been tribulation on the earth, but not like that. Because see, the difference in this tribulation is it is going to be worldwide. There's, there's been only one event. There's only been one event that was a tragedy that happened worldwide. What was that? I talked about it. The flood. The flood. The whole world was affected. Now, there's always been army, I mean, wars. There's always been pestilence, disease. There are, but it's always been in certain parts of the world. This is the next great event. This is the next great thing that's going to happen all over the world. It is the great tribulation. But he says to them, because you've kept my word, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. Somebody says, why do you believe in the rapture? Because of what that word says right there. This is not just to the church of Philadelphia. If you go down to verse 13, it says he's writing this to all churches. So he's teaching us that before that time of tribulation, before the great tribulation, he's going to keep the church from that. He's going to take the church away from that. He says, I will, he says, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to do what? To test those who dwell upon the earth. Children of God, church of God is not going to be there. The apostle Paul didn't believe in his letter to Thessalonians. He says this. He talks about the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise. He says, and comfort one another with these words. Now, if you and I were going through the tribulation, how is that any comfort? That's just warning. Amen? But Paul says, I want to, come, I want to comfort you in the word. And the fact that you're going to be taken away. Taken away. It's going to be a day when we were here and we're gone. The world's not going to, people in the world who don't know Jesus, they're not going to know what happened. But we'll know what happened because the Lord is going to take away his church. One of the reasons we know that is because of this passage. Before that happens, I'm going to keep you away from that horrible day of testing. Here's a, here's a third of those promises he gives. Verse 11, I'll cover next week when we talk about the history of that, that history, time in history of the missionary church. But look at verse 12, the third of those promises he makes. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. Here's the third thing he says, third promise. For those who overcome, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. In that time, in that day and time, what they would do, they would erect these massive buildings and they would do it in honor of people and to honor people they would make pillars and put the names of those to be honored on those pillars if they were a war hero if they were a great athlete if they accomplished something great their names were written on these pillars the pillars stood for the fact that they were stability but also they were ornate and beautiful and it was the idea that that it was just a place to where somebody would recognize and honor someone but what Jesus says is this. He says, when I come, I'm not going to make a pillar like, pillar like men do. I'm not going to make a temple like men do. 
See, in, in our day and time, and where we live, Moses made the tabernacle, it picked up and moved, and Solomon made the temple. Another one was made later, but Solomon made the temple, and it was beautiful and glorious and wonderful. But all those pillars were made of stone. But whenever you read over in the Revelation about when you get to heaven, and when the new Jerusalem and, and new heaven, new earth is, you find out that there is no temple there because God dwells in the presence. And because there are no temples there, he says that the children of God will be the temple. The children of God will be the temple. It'll be the dwelling place where God is. And that's why he says here, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You're going to be a pillar in the temple. You're going to be dwelling with God and around God all the time. And you're going to have beauty and it's going to be a, a stable place. You don't have to worry about it. To the point of this, that's what he says in verse 12. He says, That person who is a pillar in the temple of God, and he will not go out from it anymore. One of the problems with this city of Philadelphia, they were on a fault line. And they had many, many earthquakes. In 17 AD, there was an earthquake that destroyed them and all the surrounding cities. So all the people were always scared of earthquakes. I've never been in an earthquake. I've been in other things, not an earthquake. Can't imagine what it is for the world to shake and all the buildings to fall, those kind of things. But when the people would feel the earthquake, they were getting out of the buildings. Therefore, there was never any security. They might always have to get up and leave. But what he's saying to them is, listen, when you're a pillar in the house of my father, when you're a pillar in the temple of God, you won't ever have to leave. You don't have to have to worry. You don't have to to wonder. You don't have to leave. You won't ever be quaked because you're in a secure place, in the place of God. And he says this, you're going to be a pillar. And what we're going to do on that pillar is we're going to write names, but it's not going to be your name. Isn't that right? It's not going to be your name. It's going to be the name of my God. And it's going to be the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. And the third thing, it's going to have, Jesus says, my new name is going to be written on you, the pillar. So you just have to kind of imagine this. Here's this pillar that is a, a part of the temple of God. That's you as a believer, a pillar And God just writes graffiti all over it. His name's everywhere. He writes God's name. He writes the city of God, the new Jerusalem. He just writes that on there. And he even writes his new name. The new name for Jesus, isn't that interesting? What is that name? That passage we read in Revelation 20. Go back and read it. It says he has a new name and nobody knows it. But he says, I'm going to write my new name on you. What will that new name be? Why does Jesus need a new name? Well, for one thing, do you realize when we get to glory that Jesus will have fulfilled his name? What does the name Jesus mean? It means Savior. When you get to glory, he's not going to be Savior anymore. He's already saved you. He's going to have a new name of how we relate to him and how we respond to him. I, I don't know what it is. King of kings, Lord of lords, pretty good. I don't know what it is. But he says, but I'm going to write my new name there. But here's the greatest thing of all. Remember that the names written on the pillar were to honor the one who is to get to honor and glory. And he says, on us who are his pillars, he's not writing our name. He's writing his name. Because everything that happens that is worthy of glory and honor and praise and recognition in the kingdom of God, it's what God does. And when we're there, it's not really about us. I know a lot of times we think it's about us, but it's not. We get there, it's about him. And he's going to write his name all over us. 
so that people will know and we will know that we are his. But he gets all the glory. Not us. He gets all the glory. Three glorious promises to children of God who what? Who have just a little power. You don't have to be great and mighty, but you keep his word and you're faithful in your testimony. To do those things, an open door for ministry and three glorious promises that he gives to his children one day. I don't know about you. I know the days of the day of salvation, if I were not saved today, I'd get saved today. I would wait to the night. I'd get saved today because you don't know when that door is going to close. And there will be a day when Jesus closes the door, the time of grace will be over. Please don't miss that time. It's an open door today. You're able to receive it. Receive it. Child of God, I hope you would leave here feeling good about who you are, seeking to be faithful, to obey his word, and to take whatever you have, what little bit of power you got, depend on him to do the rest. Amen. That he can be glorified and honored. That concludes this week's message from Brother Mac. Additional sermons and reference materials are available from our website at parkermemorial.com slash sermon series. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. I have overcome the world. We can help you know the one who can bring you peace. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Parker Memorial Baptist Church, as well as our website at parkermemorial.com. May God bless you until we meet again.